Hey everyone, this episode is a fun one, especially for all those ultra running nerds and statisticians out there. I'm going to keep the introduction very short just because this episode is pretty self-explanatory and our discussion went much longer than anticipated. But today I'm talking to Dominic Grossman. And of course, this time of the year, it's often fun to kind of look back and reflect on uh, the year that was. And with the decade coming to a close as well, Dominic and I thought it would be fun to get on the phone and do some reflection on the last decade in ultra running. Dominic and I came into the sport just about 10 years ago together at basically the exact same time. We're basically the same age. And because of that, we've always been good friends. And we always have these kind of fun and hilarious conversations offline about the state of the sport and things that are happening. So we figured we were we would record something like that here, take a step into the time capsule that was the 2010s and talk about what we thought were some of the most important moments of the decade in the sport. Of course, Dominic is also a very hardworking dad and has a beautiful young daughter named Lindy Grossman. And you may hear Lindy vocalize a little bit here in this episode. So shout out to her and her enthusiasm for the sport as well. Um, But without further ado, Dominic Grossman and my conversation about the decade in ultra running. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with my good friend, Dom Grossman. We're going to recap the decade that was in ultra running here, uh, 2010 to 2019. It's currently January 4th, the afternoon, a rainy Saturday here in Portland. And I'm joined by my dear friend, uh, fellow ultra runner, fan of the sport, legendary mustache and internet commenter, Mr. Dominic Grossman. Dominic, how are you, my friend? Um, I'm great. I I don't think we could have had a a better topic considering I think both of our careers started just before the turn of the uh, decade. So so we are like the front row seat of, you know, everything that happened in the 2010s. Right. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. I thought, you know, who better than somebody roughly my age who got into the sport at basically the exact same time, um, who, you know, I know follows the sport closely and has, uh, a, a both a general knowledge of the sport and, and, uh, nerds out on the specific stuff as well. So, uh, let's get right into it because we've got a lot to cover here. Um, I think, you know, I, to start, it might be relevant to just kind of go through some statistics courtesy of Ultra Running Magazine. Um, and these are North American specific statistics, uh, I believe, as is their um, sort of coverage jurisdiction. Uh, so these are not international numbers. Uh, I would love to see those. But in North America alone, in 2010, there was 872 ultra marathons. Compare that to 2019, there were 2,374 ultramarathons run in uh, in North America. So a net gain over those 10 years of 1,500 races, roughly, I think, 275% growth. Does that sound right to you and your engineering brain, Dominic? Yeah, yeah roughly uh, every race that we had to pick from, there's <laughs> almost three more now to pick from. It's incredible, staggering numbers. And um, for, for 
finishes and participants um, in 2010, 50,367 uh, total finishes of ultramarathons. In 2019, 126,986 for, a, again, about a 250% increase in participation. So by all measures, it's been kind of a a turning point decade in our sport. And, you know, I figured we'd reflect a bit on, on some of the major performances and athletes and themes of the, of the decade. We'll also look ahead a little bit, uh, make a few predictions about the future of the sport. Um, but I should say before we get started, obviously most of the people who will listen to this are going to be American based and obviously like ultra runner of the year, um, is a North American specific, um, recognition or a North American specific list. Um, but I think one of the major themes as I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of this decade was sort of the globalization of the sport. And so just to, to put it out there on the front end for the listeners that we're going to be taking an international view of the sport over the last 10 years and, uh, you know, talk about athletes and races and stuff from, from all over the world. So shall we get started, Dominic? Oh yeah, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> All right. So, you know, obviously a few themes to go through here. I'll, I'll just list them off uh, for the audience before we get started. But the obvious things like performances of the decade, athletes of the decade, sort of pivotal moments in the sport, uh, times at which, you know, we saw it, sort of one era of the sport sort of come to a close and another era open, um, some cultural shifts, comeback stories, um, recognizing sort of somebody who's made non-traditional contributions to the sport. And then we'll sort of talk about the future a little bit. Um, you know, athletes who expect to continue to be a force on the scene in the next 10 years and, and just make some other predictions for the decade. So let's start Dom with um, the performances of the decade. And we could start with, uh, with the men, if that sounds good to you. And, uh, why don't you, why don't you get us started? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be as international as I can, but, um, I'll be honest. I think, uh, the, uh, Walmsley record at Western States is just kind of like the, the ultimate of ultimate, uh, records just on the basis of, uh, you know, with, you know, talking about the, the Jeff Rose blog, I, re I remember there was a uh, article I think I wrote on Iron Far that there will never be a road runner that will be as good as an ultra runner and that the, the road runners will, will always struggle with technical trails will struggle with nutrition, with the, 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 the tyranny of distance, all that stuff. And I think, you know, at the time it seemed plausible. Um, but there was a twinkle in the, in the eye of Jim Walmsley thinking about, uh, you know, the, his future, uh, races as he was you know, transitioning out of the Air Force. And, um, and it took him a few years to line it up, but man, once he lined it up with those perfect conditions, um, I don't think, you know, you can ask for anything more out of a runner, um, in terms of just the, uh, you know, every, every category of Western States dealing with heat, dealing with, um, nutrition, dealing with technical terrain, there's snow and whatnot. You know, he, he just hit everything out of the park on that day. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you list through a, a couple of them, but before we move on, uh, Jim, I guess has the luxury of 
I guess, forcing me to ask you which one, which one one of his performances at Western States are you, are you specifically talking about in the performance of the decade? You know, the most current uh, course record, of course, but uh, this year, but, or I'm sorry, just, just last year, but it was, um, you know, the, I think when, when you, when, when Jeff Rose made certain predictions about, you know, whatever an ultra runner would have to do or a road runner would have to do to become an ultra runner, Jim definitely cut his teeth in, um, 2016 and 2017 he learned the hard way he he definitely became an ultra runner so i i still would give uh um you know all of those races kind of as formulative of of that that performance of the year in 2019 in that he became a true ultra runner and an ultra runner with uh every category maxed out you know if he was a if he was a um um a, a player on you know NBA Live or whatever, he'd be like the impossible player that could shoot the three and have the most speed and and could play defense. You know, he was just impossibly great that day. No, uh, it's so true. And I think you and I were together at Forest Hill in 2016, the year where he notoriously missed that left-hand turn uh, near Highway 49, uh, very close to the finish line and and very close to uh, taking the course record in his first try. But when we saw him about 100 Ks into the race that day, I think we both had similar reactions of just like, Oh my God, like that was the most impressive thing I've ever seen seeing Jim Walmsley just coming down Forest Hill Road at what seemed like, or what certainly was my sort of sprint pace. And he was a hundred K into the race. And I think at that point, you know, this is the year when he had his dry max shirt on and with holes cut in it, pre-sponsorship. And no, no hokas. Those are out of zeros. Yeah, he's running in. That's yeah. true. And, uh, I think, you know, obviously the uh, spectators that day were just sort of like waiting for him to blow up. Of course, he wasn't successful that day, but it wasn't necessarily due to, you know, an energy failure or something like it was uh, the following year. Um, so anyway, yeah, obviously a lot to to remember Jim for uh, and especially in the last couple of years. I'll never forget as we were watching the splits come in over the course of the day in, in uh, Forest Hill, I I, I know you already have a high pitched voice when you get excited, but I heard octaves that were like just off the charts for, for Dylan Bowman. So <laughs> what? 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 Yeah. Inaudible. Amazing. Amazing. So keep going, Dom. Do you have uh, a couple more you want to share with us? Maybe um, a few more top three. Yeah. Top three. I, and I, and I hope I'm not stealing all of yours. Um, but I thought the Everest for Killian, I mean, I know it's mountaineering and it's totally different. Um, and he, you know, he took a little bit of a, uh, indirect, um, path to the top off the North. But, um, I think that just kind of showed like, you know, as, as all trainers, sometimes we have those days where we're out climbing a, um, a long climb and we're thinking, you know, how it's just, we're just living out our, our, our limits as we're, you know, seeing our, our personal best or CR on a climb. And I think that was kind of like, you know, the, the, uh, the fever dream of every ultra runner to run up the biggest mountain in the world and, and, uh, and the fastest time. And, um, that just, you know, sticks out to me as amazing. Um, 
that, I don't know if you have comments on that, if you consider that a running event or not, but well, yeah, I mean, obviously Killian has sort of like transcended the sport and I'm sure we'll, we'll both be mentioning him several more times over the course of our discussion this afternoon. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously Everest sort of just, he put, puts himself in a class of his own, you know, not only is he a world champion ski mountaineer, he's won literally every race worth winning uh worldwide and both you know trail running sky running ultra running um and he can also climb everest twice in one week so you know <laughs> killian is is in a league of his own and uh you know like i said i'm sure we'll both talk about him more but um yeah, yeah go I, ahead but i guess it'd be a, a biped performance of the of the uh, decade for exactly. the, what's worth yeah. um and then yeah i hope i'm not stealing all of yours but um Dude, I've got a list written. Oh, here. good. So whatever good. you don't talk about, you know, we'll, we can have some uh, kind of honorable mentions as well. Yeah, no. Uh, Killian's, um, all, I guess, all of his hard rock CRs. Um, and I know with his his uh, dislocated arm, that wasn't a CR. Um, but basically, every time he lined up in Silverton, um, I was just so incredibly inspired whether he was running with one, you know, with one arm uh, in a sling or he was just running course record after course record. Um, you know, the, what Kyle Skaggs had done to, to run, you know, 23, 23 at hard rock, you know, it cost him his running, um, and Killian doing it year in, year out, which is incredibly inspiring. Um, not to take anything away from Kyle, but I think just to really highlight just what a level Killian what is as, as an athlete, just doing incredible things on, on one of the toughest courses in the world. Um, I felt like watching him run there, it was kind of like he didn't get the memo that there was only, you know, 50% oxygen at, on some of those, uh, passes. Like he was just like totally oblivious to, to how everyone else, uh, you know, is behaving and, and during in the race. And, um, you know, it, he also just, the, the, the grace that he, that he had at hard rock also just really put the, um, icing on the cake that he, he didn't come in fierce. He didn't come in aggressive. He didn't come in angry. He just came in like almost like the Jesus of the sport. Just, uh, you know, I come in peace to do miracles that you'll never be able to, no one will believe, but, um, you know, I was there as a witness. You were there as a witness for a few of them. They're, they're incredible. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I'll riff on this one a bit too, because I sort of had this as my number one performance of the decade, specifically the 2014 iteration of the hard rock 100 and Killian's performance there, which was for those of us who had a chance to witness it, one of the most incredible superhuman type performances you could ever imagine, especially because in contrast with the rest of the field, Killian seemed like he wasn't trying all day and then, you know, started trying somewhere over Handy's Peak when, you know, the, there was a notorious lightning storm up there, which claimed Adam Campbell's headlamp that year. That was the, the lightning strike year. And then Killian continued on and, and ultimately, uh, was able to get a two, two plus hour separation by the finish line. And up to that point, the, that was easily the most competitive hard rock 100 we had 
ever seen. And as you said, the course record that was set in 2008 by Kyle Skaggs had been, you know, totally untouchable up until this year. And because of the level of the field that they had assembled in Silverton that year, um, there, it was not out of the question that the record was going to be in danger. You know, obviously Killian was one of, if not the favorite in the race, but we also had Dakota Jones in the race. We had Sebastian Changyo, a former champion, Julian Choyer, a, a former champion, Timothy Olson, sort of at the height of his powers, Joe Grant, Adam Campbell, guys like Jason Coop, Jeff Browning, Siyoshi Kaburagi. It was a really super strong field. And the other thing that made it so impressive that year was how much everybody else just got their asses kicked, you know? Like the contrast with Killian's performance where he did ultimately break the course record by 40 minutes. Like you know, just being there, I think it was about a hundred K into the race at Grouse Gulch, like Sebastian Chang Yo came in just catatonic, went, went down, ultimately dropped out. Dakota Jones left about an hour later, comes walking back into the aid station, drops out. Tim Olson comes in, spends like two hours in a car, I think before he goes out, or I think that was actually the mattress year for Tim that year. Um, and then like Joe Grant has to ride his bike down from like, he steals a bike from somebody on engineer and rides a mountain bike down into grass gulch. Coop ends up having to curl up in a tent with some stoners up in American basin. Ultimately he drops out of the race as well. Uh, Kabaragi comes into grouse and you know, that was a year that he, there had been like some rock fall that hit Kabaragi in the side of the face. And as he approached the aid station, we were all just horrified. You know, he's got like a broken jaw. Um, he ultimately was able to, to pull it together and finish. But you know, the point is like, everybody else just got destroyed that day and Killian was able to, you know, basically run with whoever was in the lead for a hundred K and then just make it look absolutely like a walk in the park over the last, uh, you know, 50 Ks of the race. And I remember seeing him finish and then seeing all waiting for Julian Choyer to finish as he ultimately did in second place. But as he came into town, you know, he could barely stand up. He's using his poles to sort of like keep him upright, you know, on the flat streets of Silverton. And we're just like, what happened out there last night? You know, At, we start getting reports that Adam Campbell got struck by lightning. Like everybody just got destroyed and, and Killian was able to break what was a legendary record by a huge, huge margin. So that's a long way of me saying that was the easily the most impressive personal, like, um, you know, race that I spectated in person and definitely, I think, uh, deserving of, you know, obviously, uh, race of the decade type stature. Let's, uh, move on. So, you know, obviously like I knew that Walmsley was going to come up in conversation here. You mentioned his 2019 performance, his 2018 performance was obviously on my list as well. Um, you know, running 1430 in harder conditions, I think, than uh, we saw in 2019 was obviously also mind-blowing effort. And especially after uh, those two really disappointing runs that he had had in 16 and 17. I don't know. I put that above 2019 just because it was his 
you know, finally running to his potential on the course. But, you know, I think we're splitting hairs if we're going to be sort of uh, comparing his 2018 performance to his 2019 performance and trying to come up with, with which one is better. Um, but obviously, you know, Walmsley transcendent talent, um, and somebody who's really like, you know, talk about sort of pivotal moments in the sport. He's, he's definitely sort of launching us into, into the next generation. And we can talk about that here in a bit, but other performances that I put down here on my list, um, I have Francois Danes 2017 UTMB performance in what was in my opinion, probably the most competitive hundred miler, if not the most competitive ultra marathon of the decade on the men's side. Um, you know, if you look through the, the field of finishers that day, uh, it's basically like a, a who's who in the sport over the course of the decade. And I think in contrast to some of the more recent UTMBs, it was a year where nearly everybody finished the race. You know, a lot of years we'll have 25 guys, uh, line up and, you know, we'll see 15 of them drop out or, you know, have total vision quests. And it was a year in which like, it seemed everybody had a decent day and Francois just, absolutely ran out of his mind, nearly breaking 19 hours on the UTMB course, which anybody who's run that thing will understand was just absolutely mind boggling. And, you know, he beat Killian that day and Killian is, is sort of the goat obviously. And, um, so to have that performance, you know, I would put Francois's 2017 UTMB up there with basically anybody. Yeah. And, and, and caveat too, on that 2017, um, UTMB that Francois was, he was taking, you know, assaults from multiple people. It's, it's amazing that he beat Killian in a year that Killian, you know, did his typical hard rock series and all, you know, just going all over the world and doing an Everest and show you and everything. But, um, but that he, he didn't just be killing, he beat, you know, multiple. I think uh, Walmsley was also up there in uh, 2017. He was fifth that year. Yeah, and, so uh, it, was, it was Francois, Killian, first and second. Uh, third was Tim Tollefson. Fourth was Xavier Thevenard. Fifth was Jim Walmsley. Sixth was Pal Capel. So, I mean, that top six is like, you know, the champions of the sport, at least over the course of the last five years. And, and Francois obviously was able to come out victorious that day. And I think ultimately one of the greatest, greatest runs yeah, we've and, ever seen. We, I, I think it's fair to call it Olympic grade performance. Olympic. Cool. Um, my other, uh, sort of honorable mentions here that I have are also European centric, you know, and UTMP centric really. Like I think Pau Capel's 2019 UTMB was out of this world too. I mean, leading start to finish, um, in a style that we haven't really seen, you know, in a, you know, having a 20 minute lead, so early in the race and it's sort of Walmsley-esque where you're like, wait a sec, like, why is he running so hard? And, you know, um, he just had that belief in himself that it was possible. And I remember, um, near La Folie, which I think is 115, 120 K into the race. Um, 
the lead finally had shrunk between him and Xavier. And obviously Xavier has won the race three times himself. And I was just thinking, Oh, here it goes. Yeah. Pal's going to start fading. Xavier knows how to run this course. Like he's got 30 miles to make up 15 minutes. Um, we'll see what happens. But you know, I think that the gap was ultimately like 45 minutes at the end. So Pal was able to, you know, dig deep and grow that gap again, um, in the later parts of the race, which, you know, again, is just so, so crazy. I also had, um, yeah, I had Xavier's 2015 UTMB where he won by an hour in front of Lewis Alberto, Seth Swanson, Dave Laney. Um, and then I had kind of a wild card one that I just remember as a spectator, well, an, an internet spectator. And that was Lewis Alberto's, um, 2015 Transvolcania performance. Um, and yeah, it was just, uh, he won by 30 minutes in that race, which again is, I mean, that's only like a seven hour race. So to win by that margin was pretty crazy. And obviously in a race that is one of the biggest, most important events in the world. Um, and, you know, Lewis Alberto has also been, you know, one of the best, most consistent athletes, I think in the sport over the last 10 years. So, uh, that was one that stuck out in my mind too. Any other honorable mentions from you, Dom? Oh yeah. I got actually a couple more. Um, I, I know we, we were going to try to keep this short folks, but, uh, man, 2013 Transalcania, I think people forget, um, you know, that was a year where Tony and, and Jeff Rose and a host of other Americans went over to, uh, to, to run. And I, I don't think like that race had any shortage and in, in depth and talent. And, uh, Killian came into that race one week after his end of a schema season, hadn't run during a schema season. And it's, you know, 85, 95 degrees on the Island and, uh, just took apart the field. And that was also just like a, you know, Olympic grade uh, day as well. Um, and I think, I don't know if this is considered a performance, but um, over, I believe it was 10 weeks uh, in 2014, Rob Carr won uh, Western States Leadville and Run Rabbit Run. And, uh, you know, obviously it, it, it changed him a bit um, finishing that triple, but that was just uh, incredible to watch. Like, you know, he's, he was such a, uh, uh, you know, minimalist runner is one of the last minimalist runners running in, uh, I think those are like lunar racers or something, some Nike lunar racers and, uh, still just going hundred mile or two, three weeks, hundred mile or, you know, two, three weeks. It was incredible to watch. And I think that's, that's up there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Amazing. Amazing. Um, yeah. in sort of doing my homework in preparation for this, I thought it might be a cool category to do like best seasons by an athlete over the course of the decade and Rob's, um, whatever year that was that you just mentioned, was it 13 or 14? Uh, it was, yeah. So 14 was incredible for Rob. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that was cool. Maybe we can talk about that at, at some point in the future, but moving on before we get, spend all of our entire afternoon talking about the men, let's move on to the women. Why don't you go first? Um, you know, the, the one that just sticks out the most in my mind is Darcy PCU's PQ's, uh, you, uh, JMT, uh, FKT, I think she won or did well, won or did well at hard rock that year. And then, uh, went on to JMT and just took it apart running, um, 
I think just under three days. Is that correct? I don't know. Uh, oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that was like, just like cementing Darcy as just the, the most legendary, uh, female mountain runner, you know, on the, uh, this side of the pond. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned her because I've always viewed her as the, like one of the most underrated athletes. She's very um, humble. So it's yeah. hard to get her to pump her brand up, you know, like a, some other athletes don't have a problem with that, but she's, you know, begrudgingly uh, does uh, what she needs to do to, to be known. Right. Yeah. Well, I've got it. I'm looking it up here. It was three days, seven hours, 57 minutes. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Which, so, but it was, was huge over yeah, the last woman, 12 hours faster than, um, the previous record which yeah. was set. It looks like 10 years before. So amazing, amazing run by Darcy. Uh, one that I didn't have on my list. I had totally forgotten about that. I, I was focusing more on, on races, but I'm glad you brought that up. That is, uh, really interesting. Um, keep going. Who else you got? Oh, uh, Camille Heron's, um, world records in the 24 hour. And I, I just, you know, watching her do, you know, whatever worked for her, uh, whether it was drinking a beer, eating Taco Bell or whatever. I mean, she just is, you know, um, completely, uh, focused on the task. And I think that's something that we, we really appreciate as ultra runners is watching someone just completely commit themselves to the task. And if, you know, uh, I don't know what beer she was drinking. Do you remember? I think her sponsor is rogue. Which that's is right. An Oregon beer. So yeah, but they were, they were, uh, they weren't not, alcoholic beer she was drinking that's true <laughs> so uh but watching her her do that and just you know just ron dixon style you know eat pizza drink beer and turn like a beast like she was uh, just incredible to watch and um yeah it sticks out for me yeah so that was this the just like a couple well, weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, there's two of them, right? There was um, the one at Desert Solstice, there. and then there was the world record at the cha World Championships. Mm. And so. I think she's now like broken what was the men's 24-hour record, right? That was held by Scott Jurek for a while. So, uh, yeah, the older one, yes. Right, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think Scott's record had, had gone down at least once, maybe more since then. And um, yeah, I think she was... Um, but like, it's, yeah, it's getting very narrow between the two women's and men's records now. It's, yeah. it's like, there's wow. not much of a difference. Yeah. I think I obviously have like a, a mountain trail bias and, and follow the, the road and track and timed events a little bit less closely, but I remember the desert solstice one more from last year, uh, in that it was like finally kind of a deep field, you know, it wasn't like just a personal time trial as these races have been in a lot of cases. So there was Camille, Courtney DeWalter was there. Zach bitter was there. Um, Patrick Reagan was there. Pete Kostelnik was there. Uh, and Camille won outright, <laughs> you know, um, which is, yeah, amazing. So that I put that on my list too for, for Camille. And again, I, I don't pay attention as much to those races. Um, but I think, yeah, like seeing a little bit of depth of, of competition in the desert solstice one and seeing Camille win it outright was uh, certainly worthy of one of the performances of the decade. Who else you got, Dom? Uh, well, I was definitely inspired by Ellie Greenwood's. Um, it, again, it's kind of like a, uh, 
like how did she, how did her body survive and, and, uh, endure her, I believe it was 2013, uh, went through American river comrades is second at comrades and then got the Western States course record, which is a matter of, I think two weeks maybe between comrades and, and Western States. And then this little week after went to white, white river and won. And then Squamish, uh, and and then CCC, uh, Rock and JFK was like my brain just melted. Um, reading each you know new Iron Far update when she'd won each race that year is just insane. Yeah, wild, right? And this is one of the other reasons why I thought, well, we should do like who had the best overall season of the decade. And certainly this would have been on that Mount Rushmore for sure. But yeah, it looks like comrades in Western States was separated by three weeks where she was right. second at comrades, one Western States and broke and Trayson's, you know, like I think it was 16 or 18 year old course record, right. um, by 50 minutes. Yeah. And it was just, yeah. Wild, and, wild and then season. white river one week later, just 50 miles, you know, what, what's, what's it going to uh, hurt? I guess it was a month later. Oh, it was a month. I'm sorry. I got yeah. my dates wrong, but still, but still. Yeah. <laughs> and then going into Squamish, CCC, Iraq, JFK, it's mind boggling. Right. Yeah. No, Ellie was obviously a, a champion. Um, yeah. I mean that Western States performance I, I have on my list as well. Um, you know, as we mentioned, she had broken Ann Trayson's record by 50 minutes. And of course it was a fast year. Like that was the year that Tim Olson broke the men's record. Um, but you know, nobody's been within a half hour of Ellie's time now. And obviously the men's record has been taken down twice, both, but both times by Jim Walmsley. And it's been lowered now by 37 minutes since Tim set that record in the same year, 2012. So nobody's been within 30 minutes of Ellie's time set in 2012, but the men's record set in 2012, again, has been lowered by almost 40 minutes. So Ellie's performance, Western States, 2012. I think that one's going to go down in history and it's going to take, it's going to take sort of like one of those once in a generation type talents, you know, like a Walmsley, you know, female Walmsley or female Matt Carpenters or female Killian or whatever, um, to, to take that record down. I think, I think that one's going to be with us for a while. Agreed on that front. Uh, any other ones that you want to go for before I list a few? I mean, I, I feel like Emily Forsberg is, um, you, you kind of have like a, you know, the cards laid out. She, she came on the scene in, uh, 2012. And, and, you know, if you look at just from a sky racing perspective, just the, the most dominant female sky racer, uh, of the decade, um, to pick one race, I think I was really inspired by Mount, Mount Marathon. Um, I can't remember if she was on the course record or just behind it. You remember that? I don't know. I can't remember. Oh, I do was, remember watching it though. It was near, but, um, you know, running, um, 
like what what really makes Emily uh, special is her her downhill pedigree. I'm a downhill, you know, I favor downhill a bit more personally, and I'm pretty sure that even on my best day, I couldn't uh, match her mountain marathon downhill performance. And I love scree skiing and all that stuff, but from what I've heard, that day was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Wild man. You, uh, you went off the board on a few of these with Killian's Everest, Darcy's John Muir trail and Emily's, uh, Mount marathon, all yeah. incredible, incredible in their own right. And, and I'll, I'll say that to you that, you know, my perspective on ultra running is that, you know, it's, it's so far from like where the pavement is like everything, like even just, you know, Western States and you ask like a road runner, pick someone off of the, the message boards on a let's run, you put him in a canyon at Western States. Like it's just, it's mind blowing. I remember my first days going up like 10, 20% grade Hills. It was like just mind blowing to me that, that people ran this stuff. And I think, you know, once you accept that once you're off the road, anything kind of goes, I think, you know, it's all ultra running. It's just all in this big encompassing WTF uh, landscape. I'm glad you mentioned that because I sort of have the same perspective. You know, I, I sort of view, you know, Mount Marathon as being within the same sport as UTMB, you know? And so, you know, I think we do have a tendency to sort of break things into different categories and sky running versus trail running versus ultra running. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a time and a place to be, I think more specific, but, um, yeah, you know, for the purposes of, of our conversation, just as a retrospective step back into the time capsule that was the last decade. Yeah. Recognizing all these, these different, uh, off-road accomplishments, uh, I think is great. So I'm glad you, you have a few of these, these different ones because otherwise we would have had a lot of, a lot of overlap. Um, so I wanted to mention one that I'm shocked you didn't, take, um, that for me, I think I would put at the, the tippy top of my performance of the decade. And that was Rory Bozio's 2013 UTMB, uh, where she finished seventh overall, uh, which in itself is absolutely ridiculous at a race of UTMB stature. Um, and also sort of, I think, single-handedly move the sport of women's ultra running forward in to a large degree, you know, at that point, uh, you know, it seems like a long time ago now, but, um, in 2013, you know, Rory had, was pretty, uh, experienced in the sport already. I think it was her first time running the big course there in Chamonix. Uh, Lizzie Hawker, who had previously had the course record, she's a five time winner. I think her fastest time was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 25 hours. And then Rory ran 22 hours and 37 minutes. So she took two and a half hours off of the record at UTMB from a five-time winner and absolute legend that was Lizzie Hawker. So like in terms of just a decimation of a course record set by, you know, one of the legends of the sport, you know, as a, I guess, counterexample, you know, when Jim broke Tim Olson's record at Western States, granted Western States is a faster, faster course by a long shot, but he broke it by like 15 or 16 minutes. You know, this is Rory Bozio taking down a record from Lizzie Hawker, one of the absolute goats by two and a half hours over the course of 
I think, you know, 100, 105 miles. And to put it in a bit more recent perspective, Courtney DeWalter ran roughly two hours slower this year. So she ran 24-34 this year. Now, the, the course that Courtney ran is a bit slower, maybe up to an hour. Um, but, you know, that being said, Rory still ran 22 or still ran an hour hour faster, even if we, we give Courtney an extra hour. Obviously, Courtney didn't have her best day this year too, even though she was able to win. But, you know, I'm just trying to sort of paint the picture that was Rory's 2013 UTMB, which was just absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. No, I, I definitely uh, remember that day, you know, watching the, the race go on and just every update from my run far, uh, Rory was out of her mind saying some other crazy thing or, or, or quip or whatever. And, and you could just tell she was like, she was completely lost in, in, in the race, just like enjoying herself and, and, and reveling and just tip uh, picking off guy after guy after guy. And if I'm not mistaken that, you know, that was still the time when they, they didn't recognize, and it may have taken a couple of years after that, but they didn't recognize the top 10 women because they said, well, there's not enough competitive women at the award ceremony. So they only would do the five, top five and the, and the top 10 men. And her, her ideas, her perspective and her performance, they all kind of put the UTMB race organization on notice you know, respect the the female athlete. They are doing things that you can't comprehend. Even if they don't win the race outright, they're doing things you can't comprehend. They're 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 incredibly competitive. Um, be it you know, even if there's uh, uh, only one out of five alternators is a female, it doesn't really matter when you think about the way that the the sharp end of the stick, the competitive alternators uh, compete and. Uh, I think that performance moved women's ultra running inspired probably, um, you know, the, the Nike generation. I think a lot of those runners looked at what Rory, Rory did and just were, you know, slack jawed. Like I want to be Rory Bozio. I want to be the next, you know, uh, UTMB female champ. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's what I meant by sort of, she sort of moved the sport forward by, you know, leaps and bounds in a single performance, not only by showing what was possible on that course, but also because of that sort of ethical stance that she took. She ended up going back the next year and winning again in a, a fast time, not quite as fast, but it was harder conditions, uh, you know, nearly as impressive of a, of a performance, you know, comparing apples and oranges, of course. Um, I think she was still like in the top 15 overall the following year. Uh, and then, yeah, as you said, sort of took that ethical stance saying, you know, I'm not coming back until you recognize women appropriately at this race. And, uh, now, you know, that's happened obviously at UTMB, but that has also been extrapolated to all the top races all over the world. Prize money. Um, yeah, exactly. So kudos to, uh, to Rory. That was, uh, absolutely a transcendent, a transcendent moment in the sport. Um, so before we move on, I'll, I just want to touch on a couple more. Um, and I had also Ellie Greenwood's comrades win in 2014, which was, you know, I think very entertaining for all of us who found ourselves on the live feed that afternoon when she was chasing down those, uh, two Russian runners, those twins who had 
I think compiled, you know, a dozen wins between the two of them at, at comrades. Um, and yeah, like I just remember her being, I think it was like eight minutes back with like 20 K to go or something like that. And, uh, having just one of those amazing comebacks, one of the most amazing comebacks, um, that I can remember in my career, I think if I'm not mistaken, and I went, went back to try and find this out, but I think I remember that Ellie ran like the last eight K of the course faster than everybody in the field, including the men. So in a field of 20,000 people, um, you know, that's, uh, obviously a, a great way to close it down by, uh, Ellie Greenwood, who is one of the, the true greats of the decade and true gate, true greats of all time. And that's one of those transcendent performances that where you, you look at it, like, you know, it doesn't matter whether it was a, a woman or a man running like that. That was just like, that, that is just like textbook hunting and prey, uh, ultra running. It was just amazing. And, yeah. and there's really no difference when you think about it. We're all uh, human beings just going after it. Yeah. Yep. And then I also wrote down Anna Frost's 2011 TNF 50, where she ran under seven hours. Uh, she was only 10 minutes in front of Ellie. And this is back when Anna and Ellie were both sort of at the height of their powers, but the two of them were way in front of third place. Frosty coming out on top. I think it was like her first 50 mile race after a very decorated mountain running and sky running career. Uh, but she was only 35 minutes behind the men's winner that year, who was Mike Wolf. Uh, and typically a TNF 50, um, you know, the, the women's winners an hour or more behind the men's winner. So the, the gap that year was only 35 minutes. And, and so I put that on my list as well, going into the way back machine to 2011. Cool. All right, Dom, let's move on. Shall we? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we sort of have the next category is sort of athletes of the decade. We've obviously covered most of those athletes. Uh, is there anybody else that you want to recognize that we haven't really talked about, um, rather than sort of like going through each and every one of them, um, and maybe, repeating things that we've already said. Do you, for, well, I guess maybe give us your top, top three women. Let's start with, um, and you know, maybe just focus on the ones maybe that we haven't heard from so far. Um, yeah, my top three, and, and this is why it's so tough because, um, you know, ultra running chews you up and spits you out. And, and if you came online in the early 2010 era, then you were a part of a, um, a gold rush, you know, moment in the sport where it was kind of sacrifice your body, live for the moment. If you overtrain, you know, you'll hopefully we get over it. Um, and some people didn't end up getting over it. Um, but you know, for permeance, uh, sake, Emily, uh, Forsberg has, has survived the, the decade. Um, from 2012 to, to now, um, you know, I think she still has some stuff cooking for, for, uh, this year. Um, Courtney DeWalter actually ran her first ultra in 2011. She didn't really break out as much until, um, 2016, but she's, um, she's been, you know, a, a decade ultra runner. Um, and 
you know, after that, it's, it gets kind of tough to like pick someone that's year after year. And, and, uh, you know, it's kind of highlights one of the things that it's obviously on the, on the men's side, you know, you have, uh, Francois and, and Killian. Good. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Emily because she slipped under the radar too, like in the you know top performances of the decade that we've just listed. And yeah, clearly she was one of the best in the world. Um, certainly for, you know, at least five or six of those years. And, you know, having torn her ACL, I think two or three years ago, and then her and Killian welcoming their first child into the world. Um, you know, she's, I think sport has taken a back seat in the last couple of years. Um, but who knows, maybe that'll end up paying dividends for her and giving her an even longer career, um, than she would have had normally because I mean, when she was really tearing things up on the sky running scene, she was in her early twenties, I think maybe mid twenties. I doubt if she's even 30 at this point. So, um, I would definitely expect Emily to continue on into the next decade. Uh, very strong. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, without spending another hour on the athletes of the decade, just a couple of people, um, I think worthy of, of mentioning, Caroline Chavarro, uh, French runner, had an incredible decade. I mean, t- 2012 through about 2018, she was easily one of the best performers in the world. And specifically, again, going back to this concept of best season by a single athlete during the, uh, the decade that has just ended. I mean, Caroline Chavarro's 2016, like her 18 months now, basically two years, her 16 and 17 season. Let's see. She in 16, won trans grand Canaria trail Devon two, which most Americans I'm sure haven't heard of, but is sort of like the way too cool of France. Uh, one of the most competitive races in Europe every year. So she won trans grand Canaria, the Von two Madeira Island ultra trail, the 80 K Mont Blanc UTMB, then the trail world championships in 16. And then there's two races that I haven't even mentioned there. Uh, two other victories that uh, at sort of what I would consider smaller races that I, you know, don't know as much about following season. She wins the maxi race of Annecy, Lavaredo ultra trail, and then hard rock. And then Santa Leon, which is like sort of the TNF 50 of, uh, of France as well. So those two seasons, you know, winning, I guess it looks like, 10 of the 10 races that she entered. Um, of course, you know, as you just mentioned, those types of performances, I think come with consequences, unfortunately, when you push it that hard for a couple of seasons. So, I mean, she was a a decent performer in a couple of races in 18, but I think in 2019, she sort of declared her, her retirement from the sport, uh, which is too bad, but certainly I would, uh, I would put Caroline Chavarro on the list just based on, uh, the consistency over the course of the decade. And then with that very concentrated, like world-class performance, uh, she was incredible. Uh, I also have Nuria Picas written down. She had, uh, incredible, uh, several years, um, you know, especially like that sort of 2013 to 2017 timeframe. 
Um, so just some more athletes, I think worthy of, of mention. And then, you know, we've already sort of mentioned Xavier and Powell, but, um, you know, Powell, especially like the last three or four years, he's been up there in the Killian Francois Walmsley class. Um, and so, you know, even though his most successful races have been, you know, a cup the last few years, like I, I really don't think I'm prisoner of the moment and saying he's, he's definitely one, um, one of the best of, of the, this era and this decade in the sport. So let's move on, Dom. So the next thing, next sort of category that I thought we should touch on are sort of like pivotal moments in the sport. Maybe not really like race related uh, or maybe race related, depending on, um, you know, your perspective, but sort of uh, moments in the sport that you think sort of like, again, sort of like moved us from one era of the sport to another. Yeah, starting 2010 uh, Western States, and I believe it was end of 2010 or 2011, uh, Unbreakable came out. I think it must have been 2011 summer, right? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I think it was about a year later. A year later. Um, man, Unbreakable was the uh, like the field of dreams for the sport. And, <laughs> it totally, uh, <laughs> totally was. I, I still watch it and still get chills, and I still quote it. And um, it's, it's something that... that gave the proper visual and the inspiration to so many other people that came along in the sport. I mean, you know, then there was Western time, then there was Solomon's uh, race coverage. There was all these other and, and videos that they did. Uh, and everyone pretty much keyed off of unbreakable. I think is, is, you know, what's the recipe for telling the story of a hundred mile race uh, unbreakable wrote it. No question. I mean, this, this was my answer as well. Um, you know, again, you and I come from the same generation of the sport. Uh, you know, you could easily call it the unbreakable generation as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, not only did JB do a great job, JB Benna, um, do a great job with the film, but he happened to sort of be luck into the fact that he was filming what was to that point, one of the best hundred mile races of all time. And this is sort of at the dawn of the era of the sport where hundred mile races can be close at the finish line. You know, I know that's happened historically, but you know, as the sports gotten more competitive over the last decade, the battle that occurred that day between Tony and Killian and then Jeff's amazing comeback to ultimately be victorious. I think, you know, we were very lucky, uh, as a sport, as a whole that JB filmed in 2010 and not in 2009, you know? And I also have that down as my sort of pivotal moment because I mean, that was for me, incredibly inspiring and motivating too. I mean, uh, Harmony and I's first date was watching unbreakable and, uh, yeah, like seeing the way those guys at the front of the field were racing each other was just like, gave me goosebumps, you know, like remembering the, the footage that they got of those guys, like dropping into the canyons and killing and running, scampering around them on the hillside and, uh, killing and Tony ultimately kind of pulling away from Jeff. Cause he was having a tough moment. And then Jeff's just absolute predator come back. Um, 
was just like so freaking cool. And then the gap only being five, six, seven minutes, whatever it was between he and, and Tony at the end is such a pivotal moment, you know, just like, wow, these are actually races, you know, it's not just a bunch of dudes out there jogging through the mountains. Um, so yeah, I mean, unbreakable. I think that sort of captures the entire decade. Um, and hopefully JB's working on, on something else to sort of launch us into, into the next decade. <laughs> well, and it, it's, uh, it's really incredible now when you think about it, that, um, you know, there, there's, there's different coverage over the years, but it kind of took someone with the alternating mindset to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. And, uh, I think also like another theme of the decade is just that, you know, races are now really hard to get into. Right. And especially Western States, like it, it wasn't easy in 2010, uh, to get in, uh, but certainly it was much easier than it is now. And, uh, I think we have JB to thank for that to a certain degree as well, because his film, um, you know, just had so many people wanting to, to come out and run the race. Yeah, you know, agreed on that front, and and part of you know segueing into what I see as the the next big moment for our our sport is uh, the outside online article uh, about trail runners being dirtbags. We we really didn't talk about it because it wasn't popular, but um, you know the race growth did not match the uh, growth of interest that runners have, and you know now we're starting to see that there are really great races that don't sell out immediately. That's starting to happen. But there was a time when like just every race that you could ever want to do was going to sell out in a week or less or have a lottery. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot more entrepreneurial spirit and that with that entrepreneurial spirit, it's, it's, uh, that article touched on the fact that every race should have a service requirement, um, at least from a hundred mile perspective. Uh, and there are some sort of races as well that have a requirement as well. But, you know, if we aren't giving back to, to the, to the mountains that we're using, to the trails we're using, um, then we really don't have a place, um, to grow or, or expand. Um, and I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be a, a big part of 2020 going forward as runners being more organized. Um, there's going to be more organizations and, and, a more pride in doing trail work. Yeah, it's a great point. A great point. Something I'm glad you brought up any other, uh, sort of pivotal moments, um, that you see Dom before we move ahead. Um, you know, there is, a. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but there is a, a Billy Yang and Ginger Runner rivalry on YouTube, and they're different. They're, they have their they're different um, different uh, things they do well. Ginger Runner does more more video journaling, and and Billy does more storytelling. But um, their rivalry was uh, something that just pushed both of them to up their production value and and to put the work in. And uh, there is a generation of YouTube uh, ultra runners that um, you know I I won't I won't uh, deny it. I won't watch most of the stuff both those guys put up and I'm, I'm really impressed by it. Um, and how they, they, they tell, you know, they celebrate the, the highs and lows of all training and, um, makes it incredibly accessible for everyone. That's kind of curious. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. It sort of parallels what I also have written down as one of the sort of pivotal moments in the sport. And I wrote down the Solomon 
running uh, YouTube videos that they started putting up, I think like around 2010, 2011. I know there was one in 2011 because they did one about Ryan Sands at Leadville 100. And I ran the, I ran Leadville that year. Uh, but as a young, ambitious ultra runner coming up in the space who just wanted to learn as much as I can and get motivated as much as I, as I could. Uh, yeah, those, those Solomon YouTube videos were, uh, I think the pinnacle for me. And I think really helped to, to sort of push, um, the sport into, you know, the next generation as well. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the unbreakable generation. It's sort of like the content generation and in, in general, uh, that's sort of like, um, you know, sort of defined the the decade in the sport. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you hit on it, you know, how, just how far things have come, you know, we started having to read books to get stoked on ultra running, you know, you had to just to read the the words of Dean Carnassus, who was, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, writing, uh, he was recording to, uh, uh, microphone while he was on his runs, you know, like that's, that's what we had to, to go on. And then, uh, and then it was the blog era. And some people just said, you know, great blogs. Uh, some blogs weren't so good, but you know, you, you just, you soaked it up and now it's just like, it's, you know, it's downloaded into your consciousness right. in a, in a incredible YouTube video. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So let's, uh, let's kind of move forward and I guess it's a sort of similar topic, but kind of cultural shifts in the sport. Um, and maybe I'll go first on this one. So I thought one of the major sort of cultural shifts is sort of the, the rise in, in sort of coaching, because I remember in, you know, 2010, 2011 timeframe again, and that sort of like Anton Jeff Rose generation of the sport where, you know, those guys famously never did workouts, didn't have coaches, basically were just, um, mountain athletes who like to spend as much time as they could in the mountains and, uh, through experience, through general fitness and, being, I think, in an era that was a little bit less competitive, they were able to have incredible success as athletes. And, you know, the concept of an ultra running coach back in those days, I'm not even sure was existent. You know, I don't think any of the top men or women were really coached, certainly not at the percentages that they are now in which, you know, it's kind of rare to find one of the top uh, men or women in the sport internationally who don't have a coach. Um, so I put that down as one of the major sort of like uh, cultural shifts in the sport or one of the, the major um, yeah, just sort of like, um, I mean, it sort of goes hand in hand with everything we've been saying in the sport, sort of maturing and, uh, globalizing and getting more competitive. Um, but I think that the dawn of, um, sort of the professional ultramarathon coach and particularly those that can actually make a living out of it, um, you know, I think has, uh, been something that has kind of defined the last decade as well. Yeah, hundred percent on that, and and um, I think what coaches have brought to the table is is uh, the the grounding that you str- everyone just inherently struggles with with all training with the emotions that you have on a good run and and how you want to just add a little bit more and and do a little bit more mileage and and uh, preventing a lot of unnecessary burnout. That's not going to happen. Um, 
organically with most runners, you know, and unless you're just supremely talented, like Killian, who, who seems to just absorb all the training. Um, but you know, the, uh, th- there's a lot to be said for a steady hand, uh, guiding you through the, your, your, uh, all training career. Any other shifts that you say that worthy of mentioning here? Um, you know, I think that it took, it took the, the, the blow, the, um, overtraining syndromes that occurred in, uh, the early 2010s to develop and synthesize and create a, um, a voice and a market environment for David Roach, um, you know, love him or hate him. He's, he's definitely the, the voice of the generation of I run to be happy. Let's let that ego set aside and let's run happy and, and let that be, you know, the, the measure that we find ourselves. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, he's had a lot of success because of, you know, ego being such a, uh, uh, it's like, um, the ego can, can drive you to do, you know, the incredible performances and the back-to-back efforts and, and the things that were more prevalent in the early, uh, 2010s, but, um, they won't let you survive and get past the early 2010s. Only, you know, Killian or Emily or other people that, that have a different, um, capacity to, to take that density of, of racing, you know, will, will survive. And then, um, you know, if you, if your coach, uh, knows that, um, and they're not David Roach, you know, you, you, you pass the test, but if you were self-coached and you just, um, or if you, even if you were coached, but you, you had like more of a hard nosed approach to things, you just aren't going to survive. And I think it was the, it's now a permanent, permanent part of a sport. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. I had that written down as well. I mean, when you said the outside magazine article that was written about, um, whatever that, what was it? The outside article that you were talking about? Oh, all runners are. Oh yeah. Bags. The parasite one. Parasites. Sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. Parasites. Anyway, when, when you said that, I was thinking of the outside magazine article that was written about overtraining syndrome. Um, oh, that, that also was important. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think a, a really big part of our sport. I mean, we've mentioned Anton and Jeff and, you know, like Tim to a certain degree. I think we've all been through it to a certain degree. Those of us who've been lucky enough to be in the sport, um, you know, since the beginning of the, of the decade have, have suffered with it to one degree or another. And I think, yeah, like future athletes are going to learn from, from all of our, um, successes and failures. Um, and hopefully, you know, that, that overtraining thing will, uh, be less prevalent going forward in the next, next, uh, next decade. But let's move along here, Dom. So, um, we've got, let's see, we've got comeback stories. We've got the, the sort of spirit award and we've sort of go into the ESPN next, uh, type part of the discussion. So maybe let's just like quickly touch on comeback stories. Um, and then, and then keep moving forward. Yeah. For a comeback, just watching, uh, Jim come back to Western States, you know, after not one failure, but two failures and the second failure be even worse than the first failure. Um, watching him come back, you know, there's, there's some other really talented runners out there that have come to Western States and failed and they've just said, okay, 
you know, I don't like the heat. Okay. I don't like the course. Okay. I don't, it's not my thing. There's lots of other races, but Jim committed and came back with a vengeance. And, uh, I think it, you know, it's inspiration for all runners that struggle, um, you know, with the excitement of the race and, and, uh, having their, you know, making mistakes and, and wanting to, to remedy those mistakes. He remedied them in a big way. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I, uh, I just have Hillary Allen written down for my comeback. Um, obviously I'm sure most people who are listening to this know her story of having a near death fall in a sky race when she was in, uh, Norway, um, and then breaking her ankle and ultimately coming back and having a really solid season this year, ultimately finishing second at, at TDS in what was an incredible uh, performance. Uh, knowing Hillary personally, I thought uh, that was certainly worth mentioning. And as an honorable mention, I have what I think is the, uh, the least told worthy story of the decade, which is Jamil Curry's comeback in the, I think it was the 2013, maybe the 2014 hard rock where he, uh, took a four hour nap, like 40 miles into the race and then got up and ran the last 60 miles faster than, than anybody in the field <laughs> went from nearly dead last to finishing, I think in the top 10. Uh, so shout out to Jamil. That was, a uh, it's just such a funny story. I love that one. Yeah. You, you, you can't, um, really quantify how hard that is at hard rock because, uh, um, just the, the time at altitude, the time, you know, in the stress of the race, him deciding to come back, it was just like phenomenal to watch. And, and we didn't believe it when it was happening. We're like seeing the results come in. We're like, no, no way. He just passed 30 people in 10 miles. No, he, and he just did it again. You know, it was just insane. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, for those of you who don't know the story, I, I would certainly encourage you to look it up or, uh, you know, hit up Jamil on social media and tell him to make a video about it because it's a really, really hilarious story. So moving on, uh, Don, this is a, a category that I, uh, came to me and when I was out running that I thought was worthy of touching on. And that is what I'm calling the Bill Duper Spirit Award. So the person uh, or people who, to your uh, estimation, have made kind of a non-traditional contribution to the sport, uh, you know, so not necessarily a great athlete, but, but somebody who has contributed to the sport being... So as great as it is, um, maybe, maybe behind the scenes a little bit. Oh yeah. For me, it's definitely Craig Thornley. Um, you know, the sport's grown and changed so much over the past few years. And, uh, there's been a lot of questions that have come up about how do we handle the, you know, the new world that we live in and the new problems with doping and, and pregnancies and, and everything. How, how are we fair and how are we equal, uh, egalitarian? And, um, I think Craig's kind of written the book and been a really steady hand. And, um, even though, you know, Western States isn't as big as UTMB, I think Western States has had a bigger impact in a lot of ways of being progressive and being fair and, uh, and holding the standard really, because not, you know, there's plenty of ways to make Western States easier. Uh, he hasn't taken any of those uh, options and he's been, um, you know, just a real, a real standard bearer and, uh, you know, all training can get a lot more corporate and, you know, it already has uh, become a bit corporate and it could be a lot more in the next decade. But I think the way that Western States is set up and the way that Craig Thornley runs things and, 
sacrifice he makes as the as the race director. You know, he, he gave up a lot of his uh, running goals when he became the race director. Um, it just is like, you know, he's he's the person that's putting the most topspin on the ball, big ball of all training. Yeah, that's a, a good point. Obviously, Craig is a, a legend, and what I've always admired about him as well is that like he's happy to take shit from anybody, you know, like he has a reason for everything that he does. You can never accuse Craig of, you know, being, um, you know, misleading and you can criticize him for it, but he will tell you exactly why he's making a decision and whether or not you agree with it, you know, you have to respect somebody who, you know, is very direct, is not trying to hide anything and who is, you know, reasonable and, uh, is clearly has, has the best interests of the, of the race and of the sport, uh, in his mind when he's making decisions. Yeah. And, and you have to understand, you know, sport can change really drastically if it, if there's ever a opportunity to, you know, um, to pay to make things easier to pay to, to, to get more luxury items and to price other out, you know, other social groups out of the, uh, economic groups out of the race. And I think, um, Western States done a phenomenal job, even though there's a mountain of money probably banging on the door, trying to, to make Western States more corporate. Um, and there probably is more money in their bank account than, than before, but still at the same time, really working to focus on the athletes being egalitarian, um, being true to the roots of the sport. Yeah, no doubt. So my, my spirit award, um, I was thinking about this quite a bit and obviously I, I called it the bill duper spirit award because, you know, he obviously deserves it. Um, uh, but taking bill who was of course, for those who don't know, a legendary fan of the sport never had run an ultra marathon himself, but he lived in Leadville, Colorado and, uh, was as knowledgeable about the sport and the athletes, as anybody out there, um, and who, you know, had an inexhaustible well of encouragement and enthusiasm for the fastest runners and the slowest runners at every race that he traveled to, um, you know, taking, taking him off the board, but naming this in his honor, uh, is sort of like going back to something I said earlier, uh, and that you mentioned as well, you know, this being sort of like the content generation of the sport. Um, I put down Dean Leslie from the formerly of the African attachment, uh, now wandering fever, um, who was responsible for all those Solomon YouTube videos, um, there at the, the turn of the last decade and, you know, who is still cranking out lots of, of great ultra running content. He doesn't, I think have the same kind of like personal recognition as the ginger runner, Billy Yang, but he's made just as many, you know, influential videos, if not more over the course of the last decade. And again, like, just like this being the, the generation whereby information and inspiration was, uh, so much more easily accessed by potential ultra runners. You know, I think those types of people, you know, like Dean Leslie are one of the main reasons why we've seen 275% growth over the last 10 years. And in addition to being a great filmmaker, he's a great guy, South African dude, uh, lives in Cape town, good buddies with, with Ryan Sands, one of the great runners of this generation as well. And, um, you know, 
has, yeah, just even though he's not a runner himself, again, like we're, we're sort of trying to recognize somebody who has made different types of contributions. So I put down Dean Leslie as my, uh, my Bill Duper Spirit Award. No, I, I agreed 100% because I think, you know, one of the cultural things that's difficult with all training is that it is a inherently selfish sport, but it's a selfish sport that makes you a better person. Hopefully, maybe, you know, wink, wink with the right editing and the right approach to the sport. Hopefully, you know, you're a better person if you're, if you're uh, living up to your perform your, your, uh, your potential in the mountains. And I think Dean Leslie has done set the standard for, you know, the authentic video, uh, biography and, and cinematography that it's not about, um, just me and my race and, and, and having all my, my, uh, goos ready for me at the aid stations about the sacrifices, the beauty of the sport, the beauty of the terrain and beauty, the beauty of the personalities. Um, and that, you know, I think you can show a, a, a Dean Leslie, uh, all training film to just about anyone and whether they're, uh, uh, on less run and making fun of all runners or they're on uh, in, in the triathlon world and they don't really care for all training or they're uh, cyclists. They all admit, you know, it's something beautiful and something inspiring when, and they watch what uh, he puts together. Yeah, it's so true. So true. He does a beautiful job. All right, Dom. So that was a great little retrospective of the last decade. I'm sure we missed a lot and people are going to harass us about it, but we welcome that. And I, uh, am glad to remember other amazing performances or athletes or other things that we have forgotten. Um, so please do provide that feedback if you have it. Um, Let's look forward now, Dom, shall we? Let's talk about, again, like this is like the next uh, edition of ESPN Magazine, ESPN Next, okay? So let's talk about, maybe give me two or three men and two or three women who are currently like solid runners internationally or domestically or both. And... um you know, who you, who you see foreseeing having a, a really successful next 10 years in the sport, big impact competitively. Oh man. I, I don't want to, um, sound naive, uh, or, or like I'm not trying as hard. Um, because, uh, but it's, it's really obvious that Pow is probably just, you know, lined teed up and lined up to put, um, some incredible races together over the next few years. I'm hoping that all that he's proven, you know, about his endurance and durability, um, that he's going to, to hold on to that and he's going to have a solid, um, 2020s. But to me, you know, he kind of stands out as, uh, uh, him and, and Jim, uh, staying out as they, they have the, the recipes of training, race selection, uh, recovery, um, you know, life organization, professionalism. I think um, we're going to see a lot of Jim and, and Pow in, in the next uh, decades. When, when you talk about race selection, it's like, what race does Pow not select almost? <laughs> I, okay. <laughs> I mean, I totally agree. The dude is, I think, like, 28 years old, uh, has all the talent in the world. And he seems to have sort of that Killian genetic makeup where he can just race and train until the cows come home and, and, uh, seems to have a lot of resilience and durability. Um, 
So, I mean, certainly uh, would expect Pau to continue on at the same trajectory. Having seen his race schedule for 2020, uh, it's, you know, it makes me sore just looking at it, but uh, certainly impressive. And I, and I again, yeah, hope he can keep that momentum going too. Yeah, and, and to give uh, Jim his his fair share of the limelight, I think Jim's uh, spoken to what he he knows is um, you know what's what's feasible um, for certain hundred milers to key in on uh, for comrades, and that you know his his attitude is I want to do the best job I can at these specific races, and if I don't do them all in the same year that's a good thing. And, uh, I think Jim's got the right, um, planning and training going to, I'll be, I get scared sometimes when I run into Jim in Silverton and I see what he's up to and, and what his totals are and talk to him and he, and he just downplays everything so nonchalantly when he's climbing 50,000 feet and 130 miles and he's running it, you know, and this is all at, you know, above 10,000 feet. It does make me pause, but seeing his durability over the years, I'm, I'm optimistic for Jim. Yeah, no, I hope so too. And this was actually something that I wanted to touch on in some way, but, you know, Jim has obviously been very open about, you know, his, I guess, ambivalence about how long his career is, you know, like he said publicly before, I don't see myself running past 30 years old, you know, like, this is great. I'm going to basically go as hard as I can for as long as my body will hold up. And there's going to be a trail of destroyed course records in my wake. Um, but when it's over, it's, it's over and he's going to go do something else. You know, I have the complete opposite, uh, approach to my running. Of course, I'm nowhere near the, the talent that Jim is, but you know, I would love to just keep my, my competitive prime as long as possible. And, I so ad- admire his, uh, his risk taking, but yeah, one of the sort of, I think big questions going into this next decade in the sport is if that's changed for Jim at all, because he has, as you just commented on, he has been smarter in his racing, especially, you know, in the last 12, 18 months, um, you know, he still trains more than anybody I've ever seen, but, uh, with this season, you know, didn't over race. He destroyed every race that he, he focused on. And now he's got the Olympic trials ahead of him and then comrades in 2020. So it's not as if he's doing these massive 15, 20 hour vision quest type hundred mile races that I think ultimately lead to that physical and emotional kind of, um, burnout that we've seen so many times in the sport. So I think, yeah, like, I think that's one of the, one of the big questions looking ahead is, uh, yeah, how much longer will, will Jim do it? And has his approach changed, you know, now that he's taken the world by storm. And, yeah, and, uh, and I don't know if I'm, I'm missing a, another interview that he's done, but there was a, a Billy Yang podcast, I believe after this year's Western States. And uh, if you haven't listened to it, I'd recommend you because he, he, he pretty much, you know, uh, Billy starts asking him questions about, Oh, you know, you've talked about Leadville, you've talked about AC, you know, what, where, where do those fall out? And he's like, no, I, I have a, have on my list and I don't want to do Western States and comrades next year. So I'm just going to do comrades uh, trials and comrades. I'm going to focus on, on, you know, some more road stuff. And then, 
you know, I've got time, you know, in the, in the next decade to, to go after each of the other big races. Like he wants to do hard rocks really high up there for him. He's really in love with San Juan's. And I think uh, at least off of that interview, I heard that, you know, he had a little bit more, just a tiny bit more maturity in his voice. Yeah. Well, I, again, I hope so. I hope so. And I know, um, at least he's on the, the list for UTMB 2020. So if he does the trials, um, comrades, UTMB, I'm sure there'll be a couple other objectives in there, but again, that's you know, like got, a, got that's a the Tokyo, season. Tokyo Olympics as well. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it, he'll have to flip a coin between Tokyo or UTMB. So no, that'll be uh, so fun to watch Jim at, at the trials. And clearly he's training out of his mind right now. And, um, it'll be, uh, you know, he's not, he's not afraid to take risks and to put other people in risky situations. So, um, it'll be awesome to see him racing his style. And, uh, whether he, he blows up or he, or he kills it, I think, uh, it's going to be something that every ultra runner is going to be like, finally, you know, all that's run, uh, uh, schmucks. Like this is, this is what, you know, ultra running can do, you know, so it'll be fun to watch regardless of what happens. Cool. So in keeping with our discussion about the, the next generation of, of runners, um, obviously Jim and Powell are already super, super established. I sort of wrote down some names that, you know, are, are established for sure, but, um, maybe are a little bit younger or less experienced, uh, who I think could really impact the sport and sort of take the, the mantle as world beaters, um, in this next decade, I wrote down, um, Rui Ueda, a Japanese runner who I think is only 22 or 23. He won the, uh, sky running world championship this year, like the whole sky running series. Um, and you know, having been to Japan a few times and, and knowing Rudy, Rui personally and knowing what a sort of hero he is there at such a young age, um, you know, he's got all the support he needs behind him, uh, including, you know, brand like Red Bull. Um, and he is, also has a very intentional way about him, you know, and focusing on sky running this year, he's been second at CCC when he was like 21 or 22 years old. I know he has ambitions about doing some of the longer, um, you know, hundred mile type mountain races as well, but he's not getting too ahead of himself. So I put Rui, um, on that list, obviously Jared Hazen is a extremely talented, established runner. Um, and he's still, I think 24 or 25 years old. And with Jim not going back to Western next year, I feel like the Cougar is his, his to lose that, which would be a good way to sort of launch himself into sort of that ESPN next category of runners, um, into the next decade. Um, and then I put down a few women as well. Um, yeah, but before the women, uh, Rue reminded me of uh, one of the most talented, just efficient runners I've ever seen. That's uh, Remy Bonet, another uh, another uh, Red Bull athlete. I, th- I think if he uh, turns uh, the page into the ultra category, I think he's going to be a force. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah, Remy's a genetic monster as well. And he's won Zagama, which is one of the most important shorter distance races in the world. And um you know, I, I think both he and Jared are about the same age. They both have some history with injury, but as they sort of mature, get a little bit more of that old man strength, uh, hopefully they'll continue to, to have great, 
careers uh, here into the next decade. Um, women, who do you have written down there, Dom? Uh, I think um, someone that's that's reaching into the uh, getting ready to reach into her prime. Um, it's Caitlin Gerben. She's already has some phenomenal uh, results and is you know uh, near the top of the Ultra Trail World Tour. Um, I think she's just getting smarter and getting um, getting more capable. So I'm I'm looking to see more exciting uh, races out of her. Yeah, no, I agree as well. And knowing Caitlin personally, I spoke to her on the phone a couple of weeks ago and it seems that's sort of her, um, you know, commitment to herself at this point is that she's going to kind of rearrange her life in a way that's going to prioritize running a little bit more. And she's already been, you know, on the podium at Western States. She's done really well at Madeira, Trans Grand Canaria. She's got like sort of that expedition pedigree too with that huge project she did around uh, Mount Rainier this uh, this summer as well. So I'm a big Caitlin Gerben fan and uh, expect her to be great. Any others you want to mention? Um, you know, I, I, I kind of struggle to pick... Um, like the, 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 what sticks out to me, but I think Claire Gallagher still has, um, I think just, you know, like if I was a betting man, I'd say she's, she's got a few more big wins in her. I think she's, um, many probably, more. yeah, many yeah, more. Many more. Um, I think, you know, UTMB could be something that she could excel at. Um, and, you know, Roy Bozo asked uh, performance just with her approach to the sport and her personality um, and the careful guidance of uh, David Roach. I think she's got some, some really good uh, performances left. Right. I mean, she's won CCC already. Uh, she's won Western States. Those are obviously two of the great races in the world. So I think, yeah, sky's the limit for her. I think she's, you know, still, not even what 28, 29 yet, not even 30. So, um, she's got many, many good years ahead of her as well. Um, cool on the maybe younger side of things too. I've got, um, like Mao Yao from China, who's been, uh, absolute beast the last couple of years. She ran with Courtney DeWalter for many miles or in front of Courtney for many miles at UTMB before she ultimately kind of blew up, but, um, she's got an amazing story and, uh, certainly kind of the, the weight of the world in terms of expectations on her. Um, and clearly a lot of talent. I also wrote down, um, a Spanish runner, Sheila Aviles. I'm not sure if I'm saying her last name, right, but a Spanish runner, she runs for Adidas and she's been uh, super, super strong. I think two time, uh, sky running champion. She was like, I think third at the world, um, long distance championships and, um, yeah, super, super strong young athlete as well. And then a couple of Americans, Kelly Wolf, who had a tough year with injury. Um, but you know, clearly, I mean, she's won Lavaredo and, uh, several other, uh, top races. She's been a contender, Keely Henninger as well. Same story. Struggle with a little injury, which I don't think is uncommon for these younger athletes uh, as they sort of get stronger in the sport and sort of um, season their their body to the challenges and the demands of ultra running. Uh, but I think on the American side, both Kelly and, and Keely kind of represent a lot of that sort of future of the sport uh, for those of us 
who uh, are stateside and and find ourselves cheering for Americans a lot. So, um, yeah. And one one last female I'll say is uh, Yingville. I don't know if I got that right, but uh, Yingville Casperson, um, I, a runner. Uh, I think she she dipped a tip at the rut and a few other stateside races. When I saw her run, I could tell she had that um so that emily forsberg um comfortability on technical terrain and uh is being relatively smart sticking to a little bit more road and and faster trail races right now short trail races and getting ready to, i think it's probably to incorporate some more like, expeditionary uh, style adventures hopefully yeah sweet there's so many of the uh scandinavian runners i think uh to look out for you know mixing that schemo pedigree with the trail running and um yeah i mean with emily forsberg and Eden nielsen and um and others you know they're clearly making them strong up there in the uh in the north um cool so any other sort of like predictions for the next decade before we close out here dom yeah i i think um that there's going to be um, a lot more land usage and land access and trail access issues that are going to come up. Um, I'm optimistic personally, just by some work that I've been doing with the Angeles Crest 100 um, as we're trying to work through uh, wilderness expansion and getting back to our original course that putting the work in with uh, congressional reps and, and sort of following the the, uh, the path of IMBA of being invested and in, in changing the culture to, you know, put training aside for a few weekends to, to do trail work or, you know, engage your congressperson, engage and, um, and all those things because, uh, you know, I, I have a, a one-year-old who some people may have heard uh, on the mic <laughs> um, and she is, you know, the product of two all trainers. So she is so, you know, ready for, um, endurance sports. I'm not going to pressure into it. Like, uh, Killian and uh, Emily have said, you know, they can, she can do whatever she wants. She can be a computer programmer. She can be an artist, whatever she wants. Um, but if, um, her enthusiasm right now is anything I think she's going to, it's going to be, uh, something I'm going to be really proud of to, to leave a race to her, um, to, to be able to run in her backyard here in, in the St. Gabriel's and, um, and I think, you know, we have to expand, um, and allow for more races that, you know, uh, work for play, uh, model is set up where, um, it's not like we're just saying, well, we want to have a race. It's saying, uh, uh we care about the land. We're, we're, we're very connected to the land. Uh, and it's inspired us to be conservationist and to, to take care of it. And, um, you know, it's like a motivation to buy an electric car. It's a motivation to, um, to do, to, uh, pick up trash. It's a motivation to be a good steward. Um, and that I think is kind of how we get through hopefully global warming and, and all the other things is, is that the sport grows and provides uh, a connection to conservation and a connection to the land rather than, you know, some type of, uh, really depressing blade runner-esque uh, future where everyone lives in, in buildings and, and no one sees the sun. Um, I think we can avoid that if we have more people on the trails uh, engaging in a, in a positive way. All right, Dom, thank you so much, man. That was so fun to just, you know, BS with you a bit, you know, as two guys who uh, now are uh, turning into veterans, wily veterans of the sport. Uh, appreciate your perspectives. It was really fun to chat. 
Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, the first thing I thought when I saw you, you wrote a uh, ESPN next predictions was, a uh, who's going to be the next, uh, ESPN color commentator for Ultron hands down. It is Dylan Bowman hands yeah. down. Yeah. Well, we'll see, man. It'll be yeah. fun. All right, dude. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. It was awesome. Wow. So fun. Thanks so much to Dominic for sitting down with me. Uh, I'm sure we'll do more of these types of episodes, both with him and others in the future. Um, you can check him out on social media. He's very easy to find and please do give us a shout, criticize us, yell at us. What did we forget? I'm interested to, uh, hear some of your perspectives on what you think are some of the most important poignant moments of the last decade. But thank you guys so much for tuning in here. Uh, I love doing this type of commentary and analysis on the sport. And I'm really open to your feedback. So let me know what you think. Let me know what you'd like to hear. Let me know what I suck at. And I'll do my best to get better. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time here at The Well.